Welcome to Creative Twist. I'm Sally Randpump and I'm going to be talking to people who've rediscovered their creativity after a break or taken a twist in their career paths and tried something new. Coming back to creativity made my life better. Let's find out how it changed my guests' lives too. Ivan Weiss is a portrait photographer based in London. He grew up surrounded by photography. His interest in portraiture was influenced by 12 years living in Florence. In 2011, he began transitioning out of a corporate career in media into photography. He creates images that reflect a fascination with classical composition, a delight in the technical possibilities afforded by modern equipment and techniques, and a sensitivity for human emotion. Join me and Ivan as we discuss how sticking to your guns when it comes to your style can bring longevity to your creative career. Hi Ivan, so nice to actually see you in person because we've been connected on social media for a while, haven't we? But um, yeah. yeah, it's great to great to see you. Thank you Thank for you joining for me. me. So you're a photographer, and I've been really aware of your photos for a while because they're such sort of stunning, powerful images. Um, I was really intrigued when I looked into you a bit more about the fact that you grew up with photography you know you've been doing it um, since you were a child so do you like yeah. to take us back to your childhood <laughs> I didn't realize it was going to be a therapy session but um, <laughs> well. yeah so um my my dad worked as a photographer um he mainly did press and publicity work um so I'm going back to I, I was born in 1976 a long time ago um oh, so the days yeah. of Really, oh, good year, yeah. good year. Um, it, it, the, the days of uh, obviously analog photography. Um, there was a dark room in the house, um, so there were you know the the, the smell of photographic chemicals. Um, all prints were black and white. Almost everything was in a eight by ten format, um, and that was just, I think, something that I didn't question. It's just what I grew up around. Um, so it kind of seeped into my consciousness um as just being normal that a house would have every inch of wall space covered with uh black and white prints of various people that had been photographed at various events my dad also did uh what you might call social documentary photography i think it's it's sort of more more um common to refer to it as street photography nowadays um so you know there were yeah always always things going on always um pictures being produced um or other activities around photography i remember my dad you know sitting down in the in the living room on a sunday with his arms in a, a dark bag rolling uh film onto the cassettes ready to take pictures in the week um and yeah i suppose now looking back on that those are kind of nostalgic uh memories um and then at a certain point i think i was about seven or eight years old maybe um my dad was teaching at a local youth center uh teaching photography um and i went along to that sort of partly because otherwise i'd be left in the house by myself in the evening i suppose um and I learned how to use darkroom, how exposure works, how to operate a, a manual analog camera. Um, and there, that was where the kind of the, the fascination, the, the, the magic of photography, I think, um, 
that was where I learned about it. So seeing, you know, a, a, a sheet of blank paper go into a tray of, of liquid chemicals and then miraculously an image would appear on it and it would be the image that you'd seen through the viewfinder a day or a week or a month earlier. Um, and there it was captured and, and coming to life, but in black and white, which, um, yeah, made it, I don't know, somehow, I suppose, slightly abstracted from reality and, um, yeah, di different and, and in some way magical. Um, and I think I have that to this day, that, 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 uh, that, thing of seeing something through the viewfinder and then seeing it as an image. Of course, now it's mostly in color. It's digital. Uh, the, 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 the time difference between when the image is taken and when you see it is a matter of milliseconds. Um, but that, that same magic is, is still there. I love that idea. I was just thinking as you were talking about that, it is such a difference from the kind of flow process of those days to the instantaneous um, mm -hmm. photography, but it's still got that. There's still something in the essence of an amazing photo, isn't there, that is uh, capturing a very special moment somehow. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think, I, I don't think that digital and, you know, instant, the, the sort of the instant gratification has, has, removed any of that magic i'm quite an impatient person the, the 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 wait for things to happen was not part of the attraction for me never has been so mm. if, if they can make it faster i'm i'm, I'm all for that yeah oh, okay so you're quite into the tech side of things and the, the digital, absolutely like, yeah. enjoy the digital process as well yeah i i mean I, I think that's one of the appeals of photography as an art form is that there is a huge technical component to it a technological component to it the sort of the gadgetry aspect of it, I find all of that interesting as well. Yeah, you know, it, it can be a, a, a bit of a, a rabbit hole that you can, you know, fall down and get caught up in that and, and lose sight of why you're doing it. Um, mm. but, but, but it's, uh, it's an interesting aspect. I, I, I suppose that's there in, in all art forms, you know, as a, as a VO artist, you need to understand microphone technology and sound recording technology and sound processing, te processing technology. So all of those things will play into your, uh, how you, how you create your, your work. Um, it's not the be all and end all, but it's certainly an interesting area when, you know, new, new techniques become available or viable, more viable. Because of advances in technology, it's you know it's just another thing to to play with in you know in a way to to keep pushing your your creativity and keep trying to I suppose recreate that that same feeling of of magic of seeing the the picture develop on the on the sheet of paper. Mm. And with the sort of the all in encompassing nature of technology at the moment. I mean, we've all got our phones with amazing cameras. People are taking selfies all the time. You know, what do you think it is for you that is that magic quality about a portrait or a, you know, what portrait photography is still mm -hmm. an amazing art form. What separates it from instant, the instant sort of photo, do you think? 
Um, I don't, I don't think it, I don't think there necessarily is a separation. Uh, you know, the, 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 the simple fact of the matter is that we are evolutionarily, we are hardwired to find other humans interesting. Um, yeah, for, for, for good reason. Obviously that, that, um, goes back to, uh, a, a basic need to understand whether the person that's before us is a potential friend or a potential foe, you know, am I in danger or am I about to be able to do something that I couldn't accomplish by myself? Um, and that's, that's very deep within our psychology. Um, so looking at other people and interacting with other people is the, the, the essence of being human. I think, um, a snapshot taken on a phone, uh, an oil painting that's created over, you know, five sittings over the space of two months. There isn't, there isn't a difference. Um, I think the, the medium and the, the technique is important to the artist, but it doesn't necessarily have to be important to the, to the viewer. Um, so, you know, Personally, I, I never take pictures on my phone. I, I just, I don't find it a comfortable oh, really? yeah. tool to use. Um, the, the only pictures that are on my phone are like, you know, if, if I need to remind myself, I don't know, take a picture of a price tag of something that I'm thinking of buying, like how much does it cost? Rather than write it down, I'll take a picture on my phone. Um, but pictures as in work that I'm creating, I, I always use a, a dedicated camera for that. Um, but I have absolutely nothing against people who, who use their phones as their primary tool for creating work. I think if that works for you, if that's what excites you, if that's what inspires you to go and create images, then, you know, from a iPhone 27 down to an Etch-a-Sketch, it's all, it's all good. So let's go back then to you. So you started taking your own photographs when you were a child yeah. but then did you have any plans to kind of go down that route as a career or did you get diverted I, I, yeah I, I got <laughs> I, I got diverted I mean l looking back on it now um I I think I can say that I did want to go down that path as a career I didn't really experience it as that at the time but looking back, I think that's what was on my mind. So when I got to, when I did my GCSEs, um, I, I took art as one of my GCSEs and, and for one of the, the modules in that, I submitted a photography project. At the time, I thought, well, it's just because I know how to do it. It's easy and I can get, I can get a GCSE like, for something I already know how to do. Like, why wouldn't I? And I got that GCSE. Um, so I thought, great, I'll see if I can do photography A level then because it will be easy. Why not? Um, at that point, I was quite uh, unambiguously told that that would not be the best idea for me because I was capable academically and therefore I should do academic subjects and go to university rather than doing a vocational subject and going and starting work. I realize now that that was probably more motivated by the school's need to turn out league tables showing kids getting good A-level results and going on to 
uh, higher education than anything else. Um, but at the time, I just thought, oh, they probably they probably know what they're talking about. So yeah, I'll take some academic subjects. Um, and photography kind of went onto the the back burner. Um, and as it turns out, I lost interest in lost interest in those academic subjects quite quickly. I dropped out with no A levels. Sorry, I, I got one A level. Um, and isn't that interesting that you yeah. That you follow the path that you're sort of supposed to do, and yeah. it just doesn't appeal as much. What did, what were the subjects that you lost? Um, so I did I did history, I did psychology, I did French. I switched history to performing arts at, at sort of halfway through. Um, I didn't finish the performing arts A level. I dropped history, psychology. I got uh, the, the lowest the mo most dismal fail it's possible to get. I turned up to the exam and wrote nothing. Uh, right. I wow, bold. I any of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, French, I passed just as, as a as a fluke, really. Um, the the one the one exam question that was you know a potential, I'd script learned the answer to it, um, and the question came up in the exam. It was a bit of a gamble. It paid off, and I got I got a French A level uh, from it. But yeah, that wasn't enough for me to go to university. I had no interest in going to university, um, so I left and uh, got a job, um, and went through various jobs for for a number of years. I ended up going off to Italy and um, getting a qualification to teach English, and 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 all throughout that period, I. I had a camera and I was taking pictures occasionally, but I didn't think anything of it. It was just, it, that was so sort of ingrained in me. It was, you know, it's just something that, that, that people do. They have cameras and they take pictures. I didn't think anything of it. And at a certain point when I was living in Italy, um, I was coming into contact with uh, a lot of people who were actual artists, people who were studying art history, people who were taking themselves seriously as artists and creating work. And in a discussion with with uh, somebody, she, she referred to my pictures as my my work, sort of putting it on a, the same footing as the stuff that she was creating in a school where she was studying art and learning to become an artist. And that that sort of struck a struck a chord with me and I, I started to realize that yeah but by then I'd I'd got a digital camera a very small kind of you know um compact cameras that that were available then um so certainly nothing that you would consider to be a, a, a professional tool but the kinds of pictures that I was making were not the things that that camera was perhaps intended for um, you know, I wasn't sort of taking snapshots of me and my mates on holiday in front of a landmark. I was doing sort of weird abstract details of things and yeah, just, just looking for different ways to, to view things and different ways to present things. Um, so this comment that, you know, my, my pictures were my work. That was the first time that in my adult life that I thought, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe that, maybe there's something to that. I ended up. That, sorry, Ivan, to interrupt. Do you think that is to do with the sense of ease around it? You know, it feels natural to you. It doesn't feel like work. Um, I, I mean, I, I think the thing that was 
striking for me on in in that comment was the 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 validation you know i i saw what she was doing and what other people were doing you know they were obviously artists they were at an art school they were in florence you know a, a center for the history of art with you know all of the the sort of renaissance uh art around you and and sort of really ingrained in the culture and up until that point i was like well, I, yeah i have a camera i take some snapshots but then no these these are not snapshots these are these are different to to what other people are doing so it, it was a I think I'd just not considered it. Um, and, and that comment was a, mm. was a validation that, yeah, actually maybe I am making art. I, I, I don't think I would have said that to myself at the time, but look, yeah. again, looking back, I think that was the, that was one of the, the sort of aha moments of starting to think about what I was doing as being something creative of value rather than just pointing a camera at things and, and pushing a button. So yeah, that 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 was that was one of those key key moments, and then perhaps the second uh, sort of key moment in in that development was um, I was in India for a year working out there uh, in my my corporate career, and I was there without any of my normal sort of friends and social activity, and well, everything was unfamiliar. And I had a camera with me and I found that I actually noticed that I was going out and taking pictures with, with a purpose. And that purpose was to try to satisfy some, some need to do something other than my, my day job, you know, to, to, to go and make something, to go and create something that was, was pleasing. I wasn't just going around and documenting my time in India. I was going and trying to make things that were interesting to look at which i hadn't really been consciously aware of up until that that point um and it took that it, it was sort of like a sort of sensory deprivation kind of thing i was in this work environment where i was in a a massive air-conditioned office with no natural light that was open seven days a week 24 hours a day and i could have stayed in there you know all day if i if i'd wanted to and i had no real reason not to because there was not much going on for me outside of work and photography what, what was that job um so i was i was working for a um a film services company in the subtitling and dubbing uh division so um i got into that through that 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 one french a level that i'd got um actually opened <laughs> <laughs> opened opened some doors for me uh, I mean, to be honest, it was because by that point I'd learned Italian. Um, so I was, uh, pretty much bilingual. Um, and, uh, being, uh, a native speaker of English with a second language is a bit of a rarity because Anglophones are generally quite useless at learning other languages. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I got into this, um, a small company that got bought out by a larger company and it ended up being quite a big kind of a big deal, a big corporate career. And at a certain point, that company um, had set up a production office in India and I'd gone out there to to train up staff to, to do the jobs that were um, at that point being done in, in Italy. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a, an experience. That was 2010, I think. 
So did you start to recognise that in your, you know, you looked at your work, your photography work and thought there was something more in it than at that point? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, that was that was definitely the point where I started to think, actually, maybe I want to do this. As, you know, I want to make this a career. Um, I was very, very cautious about it. Um, I didn't really tell anyone, but that was the point where I started building, uh, you know, getting the software that I needed, looking a bit more um, carefully at what kind of equipment I would need. I was, you know, incredibly fortunate because, you know, I said to my dad, like, oh, I think, I think I'm going to get a new camera. And of course, you know, my dad being a professional photographer, there's tons of equipment that's, you know, not being used or has been tried and found to not really fit his needs. So I was able to borrow things from him and, and try things out. And that, that was, uh, that made that whole process uh, a lot easier. And was he enthusiastic? And, was he keen for you? Yeah. Come back to it. <laughs> yeah. So my 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 parents have always been very uh, very supportive of of any choices I make. Really, I mean, my my parents have really really value education. My mum's worked in education all of her life. My decision to to not do my A levels and not go to university kind of goes against their their values. You know, their their, their values would be like get. The best education you can and and you know education is really the one of the most important things in life but at the same time they were determined not to push me in any one direction to sort of meet their their requirements or or, or have me live out their regrets of things that they didn't do in their life so they, they didn't give me a hard time about not going to university they didn't give me a hard time about um, suggesting that I was going to give up uh, a career that at that point was fairly well established, fairly well paid, fairly secure um, and, and you know, make a living as a photographer. Mm. That said, you know, my parents are human and, and their, um, their, their experience of, you know, my dad making a living as a photographer and all of the difficulties that come with it they had some worries about me having to go through the similar difficulties. So, um, yeah, there, there would often be comments uh, along the lines of you know, photography being a very, very difficult industry to make a living in, especially now that it's all digital. It's a different thing to how it, the, the world that my dad went into as a professional when it was all analog and, you know, there were a, a, a much smaller group of people who were, who were able and qualified to 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 make a living as a photographer um so yeah there, there were a lot of i suppose their insecurities that were unintentionally aired and and passed on to me um, which i readily absorbed because you know I love a bit of insecurity um and that that kept me in the, <laughs> the day job for a long time um yeah because of those fears you know what if it goes wrong what if it goes wrong what if, yes. what if i'm not able to do this you know it's it, it's a it's a conversation that i have probably once a month with you know photographers who contact me on social media they say like, you know i've got a day job and this is my hobby do you think i'm ready to to go professional have a look at my portfolio 
And I think really the, the answer is as soon as the question comes to your mind, am I ready to, to do this full time? That means you're ready to do this full time. Um, cause you have to at some point jump in and do it. And mm. probably the earlier you start, the earlier you'll work out whether or not you are actually capable. Um, so as it was from that, from that time in 2010, I, I worked for another seven years in my day job before I finally went full time with the photography. Um, I probably could have done that five years earlier. Um, but there we go. It's fine. It, it wasn't wasted time, but it was just, you know, I, I realize now the things that were holding me back were not real things. Mm. I think the more I speak to people about this kind of their journeys, I don't think there is wasted time because it all somehow it will all feed in in the end. And I'm sure there were skills that you learnt um, that you could apply to your business. I don't know if there are any sure. you can sort of think of off the top yeah. of your head, but yeah. Well, I, I, of course, I mean, you know, portrait photography is like the, the, the photography component of portrait photography is, is quite a small part of it. Mostly it's about people. Um, and as my corporate career progressed, I was managing large teams, um, and then managing managers of teams and then managing senior managers of managers of large teams. Um, so what, what that all really comes down to, um, management is about getting people to perform, uh, to the best of their abilities. So creating a, creating an environment for people in which they can do their best work. Um, and that's in a lot of ways, the same thing that happens in a much more condensed time when a stranger comes into the studio and I'm going to make a picture with them. I have to get them to a place where they can be comfortable or, or, or confident or whatever it is that, that, that we're going for with the picture. I, I have to create the environment in which they can be the thing that we need them to be in order for the picture that we're going to make. So it's, it's performance management, it's psychology, negotiating skills, um, manipulation, bribery, all, all of those things. Um, <laughs> all of the things that I learned in corporate management come into, come yeah. into play in portrait photography. So yeah, not time wasted. No, uh, it's interesting because I, I noticed on your website that a lot of your testimonials say how relaxed you make people feel when mm -hmm. they come into the studio. And that's, you know, big testament to you. But I wondered if there's anything you could say about either how you how you do that which you've just kind of touched on but also why relaxation is important for creative process I suppose well I'm, I'm I mean in the world of portrait photography we, we often talk about getting people relaxed I'm, I'm not sure that that is necessarily the 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 only way to go about it um and I like to think of it more as just getting people to where you need them to be for the picture that you're going to make. So in the vast majority of cases, that is that you want them to be relaxed, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, if you want to make, there's, there's a picture that I took that, um, uh, a few years ago that was, um, used in an article on, on, uh, the, the Canon blog. 
and it's of an actress crying. Now, in that picture, she was not relaxed. She was she was crying. Um, we we knew that that's what we were going to do. We had to get to a point where we were both comfortable with that idea. So I suppose, in a sense, that's more about trust than about relaxation. But the yeah, she she very definitely was not relaxed. She was she was crying. That's obviously a, a bit of an edge case. I, I don't often take pictures of people in tears. It doesn't happen often that that people break down in tears in the studio. Um, yeah, I mean it does happen. Usually tears of joy or laughter, but you know it, it does happen. <laughs> I, I think really what it comes down to is that what I need to get is what I need to create is a situation in which people are comfortable expressing themselves so the, the the absolute worst thing for a for a portrait photographer i think is to have somebody in front of you who is not letting anything out if they're not showing anything because that makes for a very boring picture who, who wants to look at a picture that's devoid of any expression you know nobody that's that's not interesting so what we're trying to do is is to get people to express themselves. And if we want to get an expression of uh, a darker emotion, something more, um, you know, um, introspective maybe, or, or um, vulnerable, it's often not wise to jump straight to that. Mm. because you first need to establish trust. And one of the easiest ways to establish trust is to get people to smile, laugh, be happy. So that, you know, if, if, if you can get somebody to smile instantly, you have more of a bond of, of trust than you had before the smile happened. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's often the way that we, we, we will start with, getting people to express themselves in a more positive way first, and then we can go darker. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's, that speaks a lot to how we are as a society in general. You know, um, if you're feeling happy, you don't necessarily feel particularly uh, guarded about that. You're, you're quite comfortable showing that you will smile in public if you're sitting on the train and something crosses your mind that makes you smile you're quite happy to just smile and not worry about it mm. if something crosses your mind that makes you feel sad or you know depressed or, or worried our instinctive reaction is well, let's not show that we're a bit more guarded about that side of ourselves um so I think, yeah, the process is moving people from not showing anything to showing something. And the easiest something to get is the positive stuff. And once we've got the positive stuff, we can, if we want to, progress to the, the darker, more negative, potentially more interesting stuff as a second second phase. Mm. And you work a lot with um, actors, don't you, with actors' headshots and things. Do you find that process is quicker with people who are more used to being in front of the camera or does it just depend on a because you also do corporate corporate headshots and things don't you so yeah or is it just a very individual process um yeah i mean it's it's individual i think um you know here's the 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 
the big shocking news actors are humans um like deciding to work as an actor and having lots of practices working as an actor does not mean you get to opt out from all of the the the, the complications of of human psychology you may well have uh, a more refined understanding of it um but the the I think the, the beauty of, of these things is that even when you've worked a lot to understand how your psychology works, it doesn't mean you then you don't experience it or you're not susceptible to it. Um, so yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a mix of things. Um, on average, I think it's, it probably just comes down equal you know there's there's all kinds of people that work in all kinds of jobs that have personality types that you think oh you, you should be on stage why are you in the accounts department there are all kinds of reasons why he or she might be in the accounts department and not on stage um you know that these these personality types don't necessarily uh reflect what people do for for a living um that said it's probably more likely the case that with an actor, we're going to get into areas of emotion that we won't touch in a corporate shoot because mm. the, the image of the company, the, the image that the company wants to promote and portray is more than likely going to be more on the positive side, whereas an actor may have more of an interest in going to things that are a bit more dramatic and, 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 and dark. Yeah, sure. Um, I liked as well that I'm, I've seen you talk about the self-acceptance gap. Do you want to mm -hmm. say a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, this is the thing that uh, photographers hear on a on a regular basis. You know, I'm not I'm not photogenic. You know, the truth is there's there's no such thing as being photogenic. There, literally, you know, if you break it down from a kind of uh, etymological Point of view, photogenic, photos, light, genus. So you, you're you're generating light. No, no, none of us generate light. That's not what we do. We're not bioluminescent. Um, we all reflect light. This is the physics of, of, of photography. I'll point a light at you. You'll bounce some of it back to the camera. What we're talking about is how good people look on camera and how you look on camera is not really about how you look. It's about how you feel. When we look at a picture of a person, we perceive it as we perceive them as a person, as if they were in the room. And our feelings about people are far less based on what they look like than we like to think. Um, appearance is far less important than we, we like to think. Now, if there's something about a person's appearance that's jarring, then obviously that thing is going to come to our attention. But it's, it's much more, much more likely that we remember people based on how we felt when we were around them than what they looked like. The two things go together to, to, to some degree. Um, but the, the feeling is, is the important thing. So, when people say they're not photogenic, what they're really saying is, I'm really uncomfortable on camera and every picture I've seen of myself, I look terrified. Yeah, that, okay. So we can, we can do something about that. 
if what they were genuinely saying is I look terrible on camera because my nose is wonky, well, there's not much that we can do about that. Uh, not much I can do about that. I'm, you know, I'm not a plastic surgeon. Um, and by the way, here's a selection of people with very wonky noses that look absolutely fantastic. And you've been paying to see them in films and television and magazines for decades. So your theory has just been shot down. Um, you know, the, the most interesting faces are rarely the ones that are, you know, super symmetrical with perfectly smooth skin and all the rest of it. Those cosmetic details are really not there. Um, but getting people to, to accept that that is the case, that's the, the trick. That's the, the thing that we have to do as, as portrait photographers, getting people over the, the that bump of seeing themselves on camera and being uh, sort of obsessed with the details of what they look like and being able to appreciate what the picture feels like. That's the gap. Because everybody else that looks at you perceives you based on what you feel like rather than what you look like. That's so it, how the, yeah, the rest of the world sees you is different to how you see yourself. It's so interesting. And I wonder if you've seen a difference um, evolving with the whole sort of selfies and filters and, you know, people are maybe mm -hmm. less, whether that's, decreasing the self-acceptance in a way because people can kind of cover up what they don't like sometimes or um, I mean, to actually see your real yeah. self <laughs> um i mean i i i don't think so um uh, selfie culture the, the the culture of of filters yeah what okay let, let's take filters for example so um why are they popular? They're popular because they allow people who don't have an interest in developing the skills to manipulate a picture in order to create a feeling. Right? Yes, it's changing the appearance. But the reason that they're doing it is because then when they look at the picture, it's like, oh, that, yeah, that looks Wait, I like that picture more. Why? Because I have a different emotional reaction to it. Let's say I've just got a filter that makes all the colors really rich and warm all of a sudden the picture of me sitting in my kitchen makes it look like I'm sitting somewhere sunny on holiday and that's going to spark a bunch of memories of you know being on holiday that's a nice thing right that's a positive thing where's my kitchen is oh, it's a bit crap and boring right so we we it's it's just the same thing it's um this, this is distinct and different from actual uh, you know, body dysmorphia when people really genuinely can't see themselves in a picture and, and not fall apart emotionally about the way that they look. Um, so for them, and, and that does exist and that's a real thing, of course, um, and, and, you know, is an issue. But for the most part, what people are doing with filters is they're just, manipulating the the emotional content of an image which is what i do for a living you know i i, I don't think there's anything wrong with that sure that's yeah that's interesting that it all comes down to feeling and emotional connection yeah so um going back to your sort of career path you started you started your business and um well wasn't there someone that you met that kind of 
gave you the final impetus to go for it, was it? Um, yeah, well, the, the Peter, yeah. Peter Hurley, yeah. yeah? Yes. Um, so, I mean, there have been various uh, people along the way who've, who've been uh, a, a really big help. Um, Peter stands out um, because there was a, a very obvious moment at which sort of things things switched for me. Um, so I was in that phase of still had my day job. Um, my business was up and running. As in, I occasionally took pictures and occasionally got paid some money for it, but it wasn't, uh, at that point, it was nothing near a, a viable business financially, but I was learning the ropes. Um, and I'd gone through the, the, the usual phase, I think, that, that photographers go through of honing in on, and homing in on, on what specifically, what type of photography I wanted to, to do. So, I, you know, tried a bit of wildlife, a bit of landscape, a bit of everything, a bit of architecture. Um, and I'd come to the realization that I wanted to do portraits, which was a bit of a revelation for me because I was like, I didn't really think of myself as being a people person and, um, uh, you know, the opportunity to go and take photographs without having to deal with people seemed quite appealing. But then I found that the results were not that appealing. Um, and the pictures I'd taken of people were the ones that I found most engaging as pictures to look at. So, okay, if I'm going to be a portrait photographer, where do I go with that? Um, and YouTube came to the rescue. I, I stumbled across a video of this guy, Peter Hurley, um, who's a New York based, uh, photographer and his, his delivery style didn't, didn't, uh, that didn't impress me at first. I'm, you know, quite, he's, he's very New York, very sort of loud, brash, uh, over the top and exaggerated, which is not really my character, but the things that he was saying, he was saying the, 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 the insights that he had into his work and, and portrait photography in general really hooked me. So I thought, okay, he's got this coaching platform. I will sign up for that and um, I'll give that a go for a month. And then I'm sure I'll be, you know, I'll be a, an internationally renowned portrait photographer. Didn't happen quite that quickly, but I, I signed up. And uh, within about six months, uh, there was an opportunity. He was going to be in London doing a workshop in person. And I was still in that very cautious phase. Like, well, that's a lot of money for a weekend workshop. I'm not sure I'm going to get value from it. But he did have a, a free to attend meetup the night before in a pub in walking distance from my house. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, I'm, I'd be a fool not to go to that. Um, so I went along and I was, I was just blown away by the, the group of people, how they were talking about photography. It was very different from every other photographer's group that I had, um, been involved with, you know, people were not obsessively talking about equipment and focal lengths and F stops. People were obsessively talking about the expressions that they were getting from the people that they had in front of their cameras and how to, how they'd found a way to get this person to go from being terrified to coming back and saying like, I want to book photo shoots for my whole family. And, you know, 
really getting into the the human side of it. Um, so I instantly regretted not having signed up for the weekend workshop. Um, and at that point, it was not going to be possible for me to attend. So I went onto his website. When's the next one? It's in a month. It's in New York. Okay, I'm on a plane. And I went, went and did the workshop oh, in wow. New York. Yeah. So you added to your investment there, I imagine. With the, yes. Yeah. With the yeah. New York financially, yeah. financially, that, that was a, it was a, a, a bigger expense. Um, but yeah, that, that was a, one of those key moments. So it was a, just two days, but two very full days. Um, and in that time, everything kind of crystallized for me. Um, so I came back from that and, I was very much at that point on the countdown to to quitting the day job and going full time. Um, in fact, I did that within, I think, six months of doing the workshop. Amazing how the right person at the right time can make such a big difference, isn't it? Yeah. And so how, in terms of um, running your creative business, how what have you learned about that and how have you kind of evolved as a, as a business? Well, I, I suppose the biggest... The biggest lesson that I've learned, um, and I think this applies to all creative industries, is when you're talking about you know uh, individual people running businesses as um, sole traders or solopreneurs or whatever you want, whatever term you want to, to use, um, we are micro businesses. We do not need to have a mass audience. We could not, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be able to service a mass audience. My business is based on getting 200 clients a year. Um, which, you know, I live in London. There's about 10 million people in a 30 mile radius of where I'm sitting right now. I only need 200 of them a year. Um, and that means once you realize that you, you, you realize that you can then concentrate really just on doing the work that you want to do and finding the people that connect with that. Um, there's no shortage of photographers in London. There are two other photographers in this building. Um, you know, within this postcode, there are probably three or 4,000 professional photographers. So if I'm trying to appeal to a general audience and trying to do work that looks like the work that's already out there on the market, what what's my what's my selling point why would people come to me what what's the point of me existing as a as an artist if all i'm offering is the same stuff that's being done by several thousand other people as a micro business that's it's just not a strategy that's going to work um it's a a race to the bottom financially and more importantly i think if you started your creative business because of a need to feel creatively fulfilled, your business model is set up to, to achieve the exact opposite. So you're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot from the very beginning. Um, so keeping sight of why you've decided to uh, run a business as a creative professional, first and foremost, um, and without exception, the reason that people do that is because they enjoy creativity. They enjoy being creative. So the business model should be based on that and nothing else. 
the revelation is that that actually works. You can find an audience that will engage with your work, whatever that happens to be, even if what you do is really niche and really difficult to understand and really hard to appreciate. There are people who will connect with it. Your job as a business is to find those people um, rather than water down what you do to appeal to people who don't really like what you do and wish you did something else. Double down on it. Really, really stick to your guns on, on the work that satisfies you as an artist and spend as much time as you possibly can finding the people that appreciate the work that you create. Because that's the bit that's unique. That's the bit that only you can offer. Um, and that's the bit that gives you the, the most satisfaction. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting kind of perspective shift to really focus and say, okay, 200 people a year is extremely, you know, it's so different from just scattergun approach, isn't it, of trying to mm. please everybody. In terms of your own photographic style, do you feel that that has evolved? And if you evolve, then does your audience change? Um, yeah, I mean, th things evolve. I, I, it would be it's, it's the it's the death of creativity if if you stop evolving. Um, I don't think it's something that I have to intentionally work at. You know, it's not like I suddenly decide, hmm. I need to do something new. It, it arises naturally through circumstance, through, uh, you know, just curiosity, curiosity is sparked by something and I, I'll, I'll do something different. Um, and you know, your, your style, your voice, your, um, whatever you want to call it as an artist, I think is something that you only appreciate in hindsight. And I, and I think that's, that's the way it should be. You know, I, I'm, I'm not aware during a session of thinking, oh, I can't take that picture because that's not how I take pictures. I need to do this picture. I, I go with what feels right in the session. Um, and then looking back over, you know, two, three, four years worth of, of work, I see patterns and, and recognize things. And, you know, I, I can, I can point to some pictures taken maybe five or six years ago that were the start of an idea that, that I'm still trying to to grasp or express now, and I can point to other pictures that were a bit of a sort of creative dead end. You know, that's the thing that I was interested in then that doesn't interest me so much now. Yeah, you, the, the the evolution thing is, I mean, evolution just happens. It, you you don't make it happen. You can't resist it. It's it's just there. Um, so it yeah not not something to to even think about in terms of the present i think but something to look at with interest retrospectively over the work that you've you've created you know i i i'm i'm very aware that the the things that i find visually interesting relate to Things, visual things that I have consumed over the years. I lived in in Florence for twelve years. Um, probably quite obvious that a lot of my ideas on composition and color 
come from having looked at lots and lots of Renaissance portraiture. Um, I wasn't doing it intentionally, but it's like, if that's what you've seen, if that's what you've been exposed to, that's what's going to come out um, when you start creating. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Now you say that, I can really see that in your work, actually. I'm going to go back and have a look at them with uh, with fresh eyes. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say particularly about, I mean, do you still enjoy your creative career? Does it still feel like the right decision for you? Um, Absolutely. More, more, more yeah. so than ever. Yeah. I oh, mean, that's I think wonderful. With, with, with that approach of, you know, really sticking to my guns on doing the work that I want to do. I think that that is the recipe for longevity as an artist and a business person. It, it, it's easy to think that those two things would, would be in conflict, right? It, it's often presented to us in creative industries that, you know, well, there are things that you just have to do for the money because you need to pay the rent. And then there are things that you do because you're an artist and you love them and don't expect to get paid for that. Right. Um, and I, I reject that notion outright. Um, that, that's not to say that I never compromise. That's not to say that, you know, my days are filled 24 hours a day with just doing whatever the hell I want to do whenever I want to do it. I do live in reality. Um, but I think that, um, if you if you stick to that purpose, you know what? Why are you doing what you're doing? It's because of the the drive that you have to create the work that that you want to create. You then find ways to make your business models support that, rather than be in in conflict with it. Um, and and that that would otherwise necessarily lead to a situation in which the business becomes the driving force rather than the creativity. And once the business is the driving force, you're into, well, how do I make this more efficient? How can I produce more of these things in a shorter amount of time to increase my profit margin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that's an interesting thing in itself. Plenty of people who work in, in business environments find that to be the sort of the creative aspect of, of their job, if you like. Um, and, and it is certainly interesting, but the, the, the core purpose of that is to drive bigger profits. Um, if, you know, if, if that's the reason you got into your creative career was fundamentally to make lots of money, you, you might want to reconsider. Um, you know, there, there are, there are, there are probably more surefire ways to make lots of money if that's really what you're really, really interested in. If that's your real reason for, for doing what you do, um, it suggests, you know, managing a hedge fund as being probably a, a, a better option. Um, if your real reason for doing what you do is self-expression, creativity, um, then don't put that on the back burner. Let that be the, the the main thing that drives all of your decisions and have your business decisions support that. And then it, that way you're building something that will, will last and be satisfying over the long term. I guess that feeds into then, I, I just like to ask people if you've got any advice for someone who's on the kind of cusp of a creative leap. And you've <laughs> said already, just if you feel that, 
go for it. But do you do you have any other um, advice or encouragement for people? Yeah. yeah. So I, I I think one of the the biggest things that holds people back is a misunderstanding of risk. I suppose um, I, I came to the realization after after I'd taken the leap. I came to the realization really that the very worst case scenario for me was that I quit my job. I tried to make a living as a photographer. It didn't work out. Worst case scenario, I'd have to go and sleep on the sofa at my mum's house for a few months while I look for another job, which I mean, thinking about that as a prospect, it sounds horrible, but just from the point of view of the ego, you know, it would be terribly damaging to my pride if I failed at something. But I wouldn't end up, you know, sleeping in a cardboard box under the bridge. I have family, I have friends, I'd be able to borrow some money, buy myself some time, find a job and, and you know, get back to, to doing a, a different career if the photography doesn't work out. Um, so the sort of the worst case scenario is damage to pride and ego. The best case scenario is I make a living doing the thing that I actually really want to do and I'm happy and fulfilled. So when you balance those two things up, it becomes a bit of a no brainer, right? Um, now obviously everybody's situation is different. Um, you know, I, I was in a situation where I didn't have, uh, you know, dependents, children who, you know, that I needed to, to pay for or any, any of that kind of extra responsibility. Um, but I really encourage people to think about what the absolute worst case scenario is, leaving out the damage to your pride, damage to your ego, but just purely in terms of what it's going to mean if your creative business fails, where will that leave you? And set that against what the best case scenario is. What's, what it's going to mean if your creative business succeeds. Um, and in the vast majority of cases, it ends up being actually, yeah, it's worth taking the risk. If it doesn't work out, it's not the end. I'll pick myself up, dust myself off and, and start all over again, as they say. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Great. Thank you so much. Um, one last thing. Did you have any um, recommendations of books or um, or people to look up for listeners? Oh, oh, oh. Um, so for photography, my, my, my favorite book on photography is uh, it's a very technical book. Uh, it's called Light, Science and Magic. Um, and the, the central message of the book, as I say, is very, very technical. Um, but I like, I like the central message of the book because I think it applies to, it's a metaphor for life in general. Um, well, that's the way I read it. I don't know if the, the author's intended it. Essentially what it's saying is that once you understand how to break down all of the technical sides of what you're doing, once you understand the science, it's all about physics. Photography is all about physics. Um, once you understand all of that, you will be able to put it together in ways that feel like magic by 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 getting that deep knowledge by doing that practice by understanding all of the the complex nuances you are not in any way robbing yourself of 
that excitement and that feeling. So th to go back to that image of me in the dark room as a seven-year-old, seeing an image come up on a sheet of paper that genuinely felt like magic at the time, I still get that feeling when I finish a picture, even though now I understand in in the minutest of details why the picture looks the way it does and how I got from you know a person in a room to a you know a, a finished picture so that that book i think is is a really um great one for that um and then i think i would encourage creative professionals to read a lot of business books um it's it's a it's a gap that um we we can often fall into um the simon sinek book i think it's called start with why um, I think has got a really, really strong message. You, you have to do a little bit of kind of, um, interpretation. Um, you know, very often they're written for people in businesses that are, are structured and, and have different aims, uh, to, to the ones that we work in. But uh, essentially those, those core messages are the same. You know, if you understand why you're doing what you're doing, if you're really clear on that, then all of the other complex decisions that you have to make the answers become clearer not necessarily easier it doesn't make things you know easier to achieve but it removes the should i do this should i do that kind of um paralyzing thing that you can you can get into um if you know why you're doing what you're doing it becomes obvious more obvious which is the the correct path great thank you and finally where can people find you if they they want to come and have a session with you, Ivan. What's your? Where are you on social media? And I'm, so on? I'm all over the internet at ivanweiss.london. So i v a n w e i s s dot London. Um, if you drop that into a search engine, you will find my website, my Instagram, my LinkedIn, my YouTube. My I'm not on TikTok yet, um, but it's probably coming. Let's be honest. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I had the good fortune to have a, a, a relatively um, unusual name. So, um, yeah, just my name and last name with London should be sufficient to, to find them. Great. Well, thank you very much for today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I hope to visit your studio myself sometime soon. So, Looking forward uh, to it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you, Sally. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to Creative Twist. Show notes and resources can be found on my website, sallyvanderpump.com. Thanks to Rosie Kernahan for the podcast photo, to Vicky Arledge for composing the music, to Jen at Studio 2711 for the artwork, and to Tina Cooney for the branding. If you'd like to book me for voiceover or talk about an acting project, please contact me via my website. And if you'd like to meditate with me, you can find me on SoundCloud or Insight Time.